0: This is a part of Romans that we have not yet reached. We will reach it someday, some year. It's in Romans 14. Paul says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end... Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. We don't know whether Glenn is going to make it. It does not look uh, good at this point. And, uh, And so if indeed the Lord has decided that this is the day that he's going to take our brother home to be with him, We are the only ones that are going to be shocked and mournful about this. I was thinking about it. Glenn came to be in the house of the Lord this day. He came to worship the Lord this day. Could end up being that he is going to worship the Lord as he never imagined that he would. And for him, that is a glorious thing. So, thanks be to God for the resurrection. Thanks be to God for the power of Jesus Christ over death He is the Lord of not just the living, but the dead. And however God sees fit to play this out today, we celebrate the hope that is ours because we are the people of the empty tomb. Amen? Amen. We continue this morning in our sermon series through Romans. We are in a little mini-series in Romans 9, 10, 11, kind of breakneck pace through these three chapters of, of scripture. Last week we were in Romans chapter 9, and if you'll recall, Paul is, is really grieving. Remember the strong language he gave of, of empathy and, and passion and anguish? He's grieving the fact that his brothers, his Jewish brothers, his kinsmen, have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They don't believe that he's the guy that they were waiting for all of these hundreds of years, and it is a grievous thing to him. Now, Paul's been talking through all of Romans about the fact that every human being deserves judgment, right? If he has not made that clear, he's made nothing clear. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can achieve uh, our relationship with God through our own endeavors, our own efforts. And yet, though that is the case, though every one of us deserves judgment, God in his mercy and in compassion, in Romans 9, Paul says, God in his mercy, in his compassion, has chosen to save some. That's an astounding assertion that although we all deserve judgment, all of humanity deserves judgment, God still has mercy and compassion and chooses to save some. It is a doctrine called election. It is a very uh, provocative doctrine for some, but it is there. The doctrine is taught from the beginning of Genesis to the end, this idea of a God who chooses. I mean, why do we call the Jews the chosen people? They didn't choose themselves. God chose them. So from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, we see that God, We see this doctrine taught. Jesus taught this doctrine repeatedly. You just don't look for it, but he did, especially in the Gospel of John, and Paul teaches it as well. It is the assertion, this doctrine of election, that, that we are saved not because we made a decision for God, but because God first made a decision for us. That's the the heart of this doctrine. He chose us. He pursued us like the hound of, of heaven, as one Victorian poet put it. And he saved us in spite of ourselves. That is the doctrine of election. May I tell you that this doctrine is for the church. It's for believers. It's not for the outside. It's not for the unbelievers. It is for the church. And it is a doctrine of assurance, of certainty. A doctrine that allows us to say, imagine that, God called me, God chose me, I didn't deserve it, and yet here I am. That's an amazing thing. It's a doctrine of comfort. So I taught it last week, because it's there. And I must say that I have not had a more contrastingly passionate response to my sermon. (laughs) Uh, There were, for instance, one couple that came up to me right after church, and they embraced me for what I had taught. The very next person to talk to me came up and said, very politely, I appreciate your sermon, it was very interesting, and I don't believe it. (laughs) She said, I'm Armenian, and for those that is not an ethnic group in Turkey, Armenian uh, is, uh, Armenianism believes, essentially, that it is we who choose whether or not we will receive God's salvation, and not God. And really, there's the crux of the matter between those two schools. Is it God who chooses us or we who choose him? Is our salvation in God's hands or is it initially in our hands? I had a more disturbing conversation later on with a very dear friend. He said, um, have you heard anything much about that sermon? And so I, <laughs> I'm, I'm bracing myself because I think I'm about to. And uh, he said, you better be careful with that because there are a lot of people who were upset. And I said, Why? He says they think, they think that if it is true what you said, then they're just robots. And what is the point of doing evangelism? If God has already chosen whom he will save, then why bother with evangelism? So I asked him, are, are these folks mad at me because they think I'm not teaching the Bible faithfully? Um, or are they mad because they don't like what the Bible says about this? And it's an important distinction that all of us must make. If I'm found to be teaching incorrectly, I ought to be called out. We ought to, as a church, you ought to be Bereans. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was making his way into uh, modern-day Greece and he preached to this group uh, the story of a Messiah, Jesus, who had been raised from the dead. And, And we read that the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so exactly right. So I encourage you, I challenge you, you examine the scriptures every week to see if what I say is so. That is your calling, and is your right, is your responsibility. But if I am accurately teaching the scriptures, but you just don't like what the Bible says, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. I didn't write this stuff. And in point of fact, we spend our whole Christian life Lives deciding whether we are going to submit to the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Isn't that true? We spend our whole Christian lives deciding whether we will submit to the parts of the Bible that we don't like. The parts of the Bible about our money, or the parts of the Bible about our anger, or the parts of the Bible about our sexuality that we don't like. And when the Bible tells us that God is the one who saves, that salvation is his doing and not ours, that it is his initiative and not ours, even though that kind of flies in the face of American self-determinism, it flies in the face of of American uh, idea of fairness, each of us is going to have to decide whether we will bow before the authority of God's word in this matter. So that's upon us, all of us. And that's a good thing. I welcome these questions. I think questions are a good thing. And so... These are good questions, and I am going to try to answer a few of those questions as we delve into the text today, all right? I'm going to take a drink, because it's been a big morning already. <laughs> while back, I was looking at our checkbook, and for the millennials out there, A check is a piece of paper that you sign and magically it becomes money. (laughs) I noticed that there were several checks missing in the book and they had not been entered in the register. And since I'm the one that balances the checkbook, I was irritated at the person who had done it, which was Cindy. (laughs) So I tromped into her with my book in hand and thrust it in front of her and said, explain what's going on here. She didn't say a word. She took the checkbook. She turned the register to the next page. (laughs) Ha ha! If someone, I, I won't say who, had bothered to turn the page, some of his concerns would have been alleviated. <laughs> That's what we're going to do today. We're going to turn the page. I hope that everyone who was irritated last week came back. If not, you're a snowflake. And I believe many of the concerns will be alleviated because, as I said, chapter 9 and chapter 10 must be taken together. It's too much to preach in one sitting, but they must be taken together. I talked about them last week, like chapter 9 is a, one piece of bread, chapter 10, another piece of bread, and right in the middle is a piece of ham, and all of it is taken together. And then someone pointed out a ham sandwich for a Jewish apostle. <laughs> That was an ad-lib, and that's what happens when I ad-lib things. I get in trouble. So, um, Paul begins chapter 10, and they belong together. He begins chapter 10 the very same way he began chapter 9. We're not going to start with that text. We're going to move a little further in for the preaching text, but you should just know that he starts out in the same way. He continues to lament. He continues to express his anxiety, his pain, over the fact that his Jewish brothers have rejected Jesus. He says, they believe they've been saved because they are chosen. They believe they have been saved because they are obedient to the law by their actions. They believe that they have earned their salvation. And Paul says, no. Salvation is not something to be earned. It is not something that we do. It is something that God does. He says, it is God who has spoken the word of salvation into us. And yet, he goes on to say, still, there is a part that we are called to play a part of response. So listen to Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 8. The word is near you, that word of salvation, it is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaimed. Because if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For as the scripture says, everyone everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you meet us now in your word? Would you bring together these pieces that seem perhaps to some, perhaps, perhaps to many, confusing and contradictory? Will you bring them together in a way that helps us to trust you as the author and the finisher of our salvation? For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to return back to the question that my friend asked the concern that he expressed where he said if election is true if what you're teaching is true then we are just robots and if that is true then what's the point of doing evangelism I wonder if any here share at least some of that puzzlement themselves some of you might that's okay that's okay I hope you see now why it's so important to turn the page though do you how it's important to read the rest of the story. Chapter 9, indeed, focuses on God's initiative, God's decision to save some. And by the way, God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. God is God. If we're going to be the arbiters of what is fair against just and almighty God, I I don't think that's a position I really want to be in. It is God's right to choose to do. So does that mean that we are robots? What did Paul say in this chapter? Give me one word with two letters. No, right. Paul says, no, absolutely not. God does indeed give us a part to play in this this redemptive plan. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your hearts God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So how does God invite us to participate in his redemptive plan? First of all, he says, I want you to confess. Confess. The confession that we are called to make is what? What is the confession that he lists there? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was the earliest, simplest confession of faith of the early church. And we find it again and again. Jesus is Lord is what they confessed in the early church. And this three-word confession was actually very simple and very radical, outrageous in some ways. Because what you were saying when you said Jesus is Lord is you were saying Jesus is God. He is the sovereign. It was the same language that used to speak of God. He is the ruler uh, not only of your life but of over all things. This was a dangerous thing to do also in Rome, in the Roman Empire, when you were called to declare that Caesar was Lord. Christians couldn't do that either. So Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only Lord. And of course, to Paul's Jewish listeners, it would have been blasphemy to suggest that this man born in Bethlehem, who lived in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, this man was in fact divine. He was the God. He was God in the flesh. But that is what Paul taught. It is what the early church believed. It's what the church today still believes. The true church, it still believes. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to say that King Jesus is the ruler, the sovereign over every aspect of my life. And not only my life, but all lives. All of creation, all of eternity, Jesus is the Lord over that. It is still a radical confession of faith. Lots of people want Jesus as Savior. Who wouldn't want Jesus as Savior? Who wouldn't want someone who's willing to take away our sins? Who wouldn't want someone who's willing to hang as a proxy on the cross in our behalf so that we don't have to pay the price of our own rebellions? We like the idea of Jesus as Savior. We're just not so keen on the Lord part. We would really like our prayer of confession to be, Jesus, I want you to be the Savior of my life so that I can be the Lord of my own. I invite you to save me so that I can continue to live the way that I want to live. That's my prayer. And many of us live out our lives exactly that way, whether we pray it or not. We want Savior. We don't want Lordship because we still want to be the lords of our own life. It's the first sin, and it continues to this day. So this first essential confession of faith, it must be to surrender the control of our lives over to the Lord. And it was problematic for first-century Jews... It's problematic for 21st century Americans too, but tough toenails. It is a non-negotiable Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, there are other things, obviously, that we come to believe and we consider to be essentials of Christian doctrine. But right here is the, it's the linchpin of the whole thing the confession, the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what we're going to celebrate in two weeks at Easter. It's what, by the way, we celebrate every Sunday. That's why we moved the Sabbath to Sunday, because that was resurrection day, and the Christians wanted to celebrate their worship on the day of Jesus' resurrection. So every Sunday is resurrection day. Every Sunday is Easter. I remember when we were Still, in a former denomination, that will remain unnamed. It's kind of like Prince. I mean, we're not going to name it. But um, I was seated at a table of 13 Presbytery leaders at a time when we were in some turmoil as a Presbytery between the liberals and the conservatives. And we were trying to figure out, how shall we live together? How shall we work together? And we were talking about maybe it's by doing things together. And I said, mission arises out of conviction. Let's start with what we believe in common. Let's, let's figure out what it is that we share in belief and let that be the core of what we do going forward. So I said, how about this one? How about the bodily resurrection of Christ? 13 of us around here, surely we can affirm together the bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus. I still remember to this day how shocked I was to discover that of the 13 people around that table, three of those pastors could not affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just saw some of you sit back in complete shock. Imagine how I felt. I remember thinking at that moment, we are done. We are done. We cannot be in a denomination where it is possible for a pastor of that denomination to not affirm the single most important confession of the historic Christian church. For me, that was the beginning of the end of that relationship. There are many things upon which we can disagree as Christians, including the doctrine of election, by the way. That is not a salvation issue. But if you do not believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you do not believe the foundational truth that makes one Christian, period. But if you do... If you confess that Jesus is Lord, and by confession I don't mean just lip service, if you speak the true confession of faith, if you believe in your heart that God indeed raised this Jesus from death back to life again and therefore paid for our sins, and is the Lord over the dead and the living as we affirmed earlier today, then what is Paul's promise? If you confess, if you believe, what is his promise? You will be saved. How many of those who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts God raised him from the dead. How many of that group, does Paul say, will be saved? Indeed. All. In fact, he repeats that. It is a litany for three verses in a row. Verse 11 says, Everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. Everyone. Verse 12. God bestows his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. All, everyone will be saved if they call upon the name of the Lord. How many of you have visited the Union Station downtown Tacoma? Raise your hand. If you haven't, you ought to go. It's really quite something. The Chihuly art is beautiful. The glass art is beautiful. uh, They've really restored this old historic building in a beautiful way. But there was a time about 50 years ago when it was actually a station, a train station. And I remember... Mom, I know you do, when we were like, I was about five. And uh, my mom and my sister and I were went there on uh, for a transfer from, a, for a train, a, t- a train ride from Yakima down to Martinez, California. And I still, 55 years later or so, I still remember vividly the sense of bedlam in that station. It, was, it, was, it seemed like, to me, a whirling mass of humanity. Of course, we lived in Yakima, so everything seemed to... <laughs> whirling mass of humanity but I do remember that stairs were filled with people and platforms that were filled with people and suddenly I realized that I was standing by myself I had lost my mommy and and so I began to scream at the top of my lungs and I remember here mom you remember this you do don't you I remember mom screaming at the top of her lungs I didn't care that people were staring at me I had lost my mommy mommy you know I still cry that out once in a while today (laughs) I was lost. I was desperate. I needed finding. And so I called out to my mommy. Paul promises that everyone, all, everyone who calls out to their daddy in heaven, everyone who calls out in their state of separation and fear, everyone will be saved. But wait a second. Didn't Paul just say that God elects those whom he will elect to save? Yes. And now is he saying that all who respond to God's call by calling out to him that they will be saved? Yes. So, which is it? Is it God's election or is it our free will? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes. Is it confusing? Is it a mystery? Is it true at the same time? Here's another word. You know me and my words. I want to teach you another word. Antinomy. Say that. Antinomy. We're not talking antenna. We're not talking sea anemone. We're not even talking antimony, which is an, it's number 51 on the, on the periodic chart. Antinomy. Antinomy. The basis of antinomianism, actually. An antinomy is a contradiction between two statements that are equally true. Antinomy. And that's what we have here between election and free will. A contradiction, a seeming contradiction between two statements that are equally true. So, do we believe, as John writes, that God so loved the whole world that he sent his son to save us? Do we believe that? Yes, we believe. Do we believe, as Peter writes, that the Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance? Do we believe? Yes, we believe. Do we believe, as Paul writes, that God predestined those who would be saved from before the foundation of the earth? Yes, we believe. And do we believe, as Jesus taught, that not all will be saved, that broad is the way to destruction and many are those who will travel therein? Yes, we believe. All of those things, we believe them. Election, free will, it is an an antinomy. It's like two faces of the same coin. Or... Thinking of it differently, it's like guy wires that are holding a great tower in place. You know what happens if you take one away or the other away, the thing will topple over. It's because of the tension that those two wires, or the many wires, that's the tension that holds that tower in place. And there's a sense that election and free will are those wires that are holding this doctrine together in place. Is it something that is easy to understand? Of course it's not. But think of what we claim about God, our great God, who's the creator of all things, eternal, all-knowing. Do we really think that there's going to be some thoughts that God has that might, you know, might, not, might be a little confusing to us? I mean, are we really going to measure the reasonableness of it, of what God has de- uh, declared and, determined, and decreed against uh, whether it's something that we can figure out completely or not? How foolish would that be? Our God is great. Our God declares himself to be sovereign. He is the the elector, and he is also the saver. At the same time, it is an antinomy. Both are true. Both are to be believed. So are you just a robot? Paul would say no. God, in his grace, has granted you the privilege of response to his call. What you do matters. What you do, how you respond, matters to your salvation. Now to the other question that was raised. Why bother with evangelism? Do you think Paul spoke to that matter in this text as well? Why bother spreading the news around? If God is really the initiator of salvation, if it's all in his hands, if he decides who will be saved, then why bother telling anyone at all about Jesus? Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on, of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ this is why we do evangelism this is why we do evangelism because God in his sovereignty uses the witness of his followers to save other children By the way, the other reason we do evangelism is because Jesus told us to. So if you're going to call Christ the Lord, you better be obedient to what we call his great commission. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. So we do it because Jesus the Lord told us to do it. We have a privilege and a responsibility to share with others. One of the questions that came out of there, I think, speaks deeply to the heart of who we are as a church. Paul asks, how are they to preach unless they are sent we need to be ascending people. And one of the things that I'm most excited about as our church, as I look back over three decades, is that we have been a ascending church. The answer to this question is the reason that we continue to raise up and train and send out our young leaders, our young pastors. Last Thursday's Session took under care Julie Hawkins, a daughter of this church. She's going to be examined at Presbytery in May to be received as a candidate for ministry. She's one of several right now. We have Ryan Palmer, our youth ministries director. He is also under care of, presbytery, of, of our presbytery to, pre, to go into pastoral ministry. Next fall, uh, Gunnar Tesdal, our worship, uh, minister of worship, is also going to come under care to pursue pastoral ministry. And a point of, of personal in, uh, in interest to me, last Thursday night, our session voted to call and ordain our Rachel Toon as a chaplain to the Amara International School in Kenya, a school for abused women and girls. Because we believe in the saving power of the gospel, we are a church that sends out pastors. Fifteen so far. Rachel will be sixteen. Three more in the pipeline. That's nineteen. And we are still counting. And I pray we will still be counting. The world needs churches that send pastors. The world needs them. That's who we are. That's part of who we are. And so to my friends who were pondering this, this point this last week, I would say, here you go. Read chapter 10. The same Paul who teaches election also teaches us to be sharers of the good news, to do evangelism. He, did, he teaches both. So my question would be to this. It, I would turn the question right back on not only them but all of us. If you're concerned about whether or not to do evangelism, Paul says to do it. How are we doing at it? How are we doing? Honestly, how are we doing at sharing the good news of Jesus? Here's one of those moments when your pastor is going to be very, very uh, real with you. There was a time as a church when I think we were better at it. There was a time as a church when I think we were better at this, when we were more excited about our faith. We were more excited about inviting friends to our church. We were more excited about sharing the good news. We have matured over the years in many aspects of our faith. There are many things that we can point to. Our recent survey suggests that. In many ways in which we have matured. But honestly, in the process of becoming mature followers of Jesus, I think we've lost some of the passion to share. We love our church. We love being together. We love coming to worship. We love growing. We love learning more. But the passion we once had as a church for the lost, I think, needs to be rekindled. So I want you to return with me to the first part of these two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10. In both instances, Paul speaks out of his angst. He speaks of his unceasing anguish. He speaks of his great sorrow. He speaks of this as a topic of his prayers, of his heart's desire that his brothers, his sisters, his kinsmen in in the Jewish faith, that they would be saved. This is a a cause of... he, He is perturbed over this. And I want to ask this of all of us, this sincere question. Do do you share any of those emotions? When you think of someone you love who does not yet know Jesus, is there any sorrow? Is there any anguish in your heart? Is there any longing to see them come to faith? How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? I love this church, you know I do, I love my sweetheart church, but I believe we have grown lackadaisical about sharing the good news, the incredible news that one day changed our lives and about which we were so excited. Last week I met a young man who has been coming to our Alpha program, it's an incredible program that we've launched with incredible momentum, so much so that we're going to continue right on after this one is done. This young man gave his life to Christ. He responded to the call of Christ at one of the Alpha meetings. And he came up. He wanted to meet me. He was so excited. He was bubbling. He was almost vibrating in front of me as he talked about how, what God was doing in his life. You're going to hear from him on Easter. You're going to have an opportunity to hear this young believer and see what it means to bubble again. Because I looked in his face and watched him bubble, and I thought... I don't know when the last time I bubbled like that was. When was the last time you bubbled? But he is so excited. Could I just say that Easter is the perfect time to rekindle that flame within our hearts and as a church? It's the perfect time to do it. If ever there's a time that your friends are going to tolerate you talking about God, it's Easter. This is our moment. And so I want to invite you to do something that I have set myself to do. Because I, 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 I walk with you in this. I don't think that I have been as impassioned as I once was. I'm going to pray every day, Holy Spirit, would you give an opportunity for me to speak to someone about our services that are coming up? And when you do, if you do, give me the courage to offer that invitation. Simple, simple prayer. Holy Spirit, open up an opportunity for me to speak to someone about Easter and invite them to come. Give me the courage to invite them to come. I'm praying that every day. I wonder how many here would be willing to stick their hand up and say, Pastor Mark, I will join you for two weeks in praying that same prayer. How many would join me in that prayer? Thank you. I'm going to memorize your faces and we're going to talk. You found a brochure, I didn't bring it up with me, but you saw the little flyer that's in there. That's a wonderful, handy thing. Just hand it to them. Say, I don't know if you have a church home, but if you don't, why don't you join us, one of these services? It would be better to say, could I take you? Could I meet you? I will meet you there or I'll take you there. I want this church to return to a place that I think we once held. Uh, You know, when when John was writing to the Ephesians, he says, I have this against you. You lost your first love. He says, you're doing everything right. You believe all the right stuff. But he said, you lost your first love. You've lost your passion. You got the spiritual blahs a little bit, Paul or John said in the Revelation. I want us to rekindle this passion that we once knew. Because there are people who are dying and will spend a Christless eternity unless we bring to them the incredible good news that God loves them and is inviting them into relationship. How will they believe in him of whom they have never Heard. Let's do something about this. Let us pray. Lord, how I love this church. I, I love who you've brought together in this community, the, the warmth, the fellowship, the passion. I love the vision that we've had over years together. I also love the way, Lord, that we, from time to time, take a close look and say, you know what, we've got to do something better here. I pray, Lord, that this might be one of those moments when we Each of us takes a very serious personal spiritual inventory and says, when was the last time that I shared my love of Jesus with someone? God, I pray that we would go out this day determined to be obedient to you, to listen to your spirit, not to force the issue, but to look for the opportunities your spirit raises and then to have the courage to speak. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for calling us. We acknowledge, though, that each of us must respond to that call and I pray that we will do so in faith, in confidence, and courage. For we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.